Chuck Colson was an unlikely candidate for service in the kingdom of Christ. Driven, intelligent, and unprincipled, he blindly chose to seek and serve the kingdom of political power. You might know that Colson's largely credited for the election and re-election of Richard Nixon to the United States presidency in 1968 and 1972. At only 38 years of age, Colson was appointed special counsel to the president. And then within the White House, he helped to foster an atmosphere of ruthlessness, self-deceit, and disloyalty. His great accomplishments, sadly, were matched by an equally great darkness of heart. He had a reputation as the White House hatchet man, Biographer Eric Metaxas explains that ultimately, Colson's disregard for truth brought a great nation to the edge of ruin. Eventually, Chuck's ways caught up with him. The same viciousness and ruthlessness that had characterized the way he dealt with his political enemies characterized the way he was treated by the special prosecutor who sought to implicate him in that well-known Watergate scandal. Chuck went to prison. He was reaping what he'd sown. Thankfully, God had been at his secret work in Chuck's heart during the year the scandal was growing, making his heart fertile ground for Christ to reign. He was preparing Chuck Colson to serve a new master. And by the time he went to prison, Chuck had turned his life over to Jesus Christ. Eventually, he started Prison Fellowship Ministries, which within the first three years employed 100 people and had 7,000 volunteers in 23 states. God chose and used a very imperfect and unlikely candidate for his service. But not for the first time. This lesson and the next cover the portion of Genesis that's primarily about the patriarch Jacob. Now, while Abraham was a man who's known primarily for his faith, and Isaac is known as Abraham's son and heir, Jacob was a troublemaker. Like Chuck Colson and many others who appear to get away with causing trouble for a period of time, eventually Jacob became a victim of his own wrongdoing. You know, the fact that the Bible presents its characters' flaws so straightforwardly is actually evidence that it's true. Why would its writers have included incriminating information about their heroes and heroines otherwise? Revealing many of its characters' flaws achieves another purpose, though. It also encourages people like me, and I imagine people like you, since we are imperfect ourselves, that God can and will work through us. Now, in the next lesson, we're going to learn about a struggle Jacob faced 
after which he learned to rely only on God. But in this lesson, we'll learn about the first part of Jacob's life, the part he attempted to live by his own methods. We see how God prepared the heart of this imperfect and unlikely man for his service. He did so by allowing Jacob, as he did Chuck Colson, to endure certain discomforts. And although their circumstances may be very different than ours, I think you're going to find that the nature of the discomforts God allowed is not so different. We uh, will discover these comforts in Genesis 27 through 31 as we make our way through. So let's open up to Genesis 27. And in verse 1, we're told that Isaac was old and increasingly blind. By the way, he must have been at least 100 at the time when he called for his older son, Esau, intending to give him his blessing. Now, the blessings given by the patriarchs Isaac and Jacob were more than just prayers or hopes and thoughts. They understood their blessings to be irrevocable prophecies. Jacob instructed Esau to prepare, excuse me, Isaac instructed Esau to prepare a meal of wild game in anticipation and in celebration of this event. Now, the Lord had told Rebekah, the twins' mother, that their older son, Esau, the older brother, was to serve the younger. And you know, as a mom myself, I'm thinking it's hard to imagine that Rebekah wouldn't have shared this information with her husband? Why then would Isaac have called Esau to receive his blessing? Esau had already proven to be unfit and uninterested in receiving God's patriarchal promises by his marriages and his prioritizing of a meal over the birth, his birthright. We read about that last week. I think Isaac's decision can only be explained by the fact that he favored Esau, a detail we're given in chapter 25, verse 28. Now, if Rebecca was actually quoting her husband accurately in chapter 27, verse 7, and Isaac intended to bless Esau, as she said, in the presence of the Lord, in one way or another, Isaac must have rationalized his decision to do this. So Rebecca devised a scheme, a scheme to ensure Jacob, not Esau, received the blessing. She must have been pretty confident that God would ensure her success since she was willing to put herself under the curse Jacob thought he might receive if their plan failed. Nevertheless, she sinned. She sinned by taking matters into her own hands rather than waiting for God to bring about the fulfillment of his prophecy that her older son would serve the younger. Well, Jacob must take a large part of the blame in the ruse himself. When his mother explained her plan, he never questioned whether it was ethical. He was an adult and he only showed concern lest he get blamed, lest he be caught. You can find that in verse 12. 
And nevertheless, Jacob chose to bring Rebekah's meal to his father, repeatedly claiming to be Esau. Because of his blindness, Isaac was deceived into believing Esau was the son standing before him. Isaac unknowingly passed on the covenantal promises of God, first given to Abraham, to his son Jacob. Well, it turns out that Jacob had scarcely left the room when Esau returned with the meat he'd prepared for his father. In shock and anger, Esau commented bitterly on the appropriateness of Jacob's name, which means he grasped the heel. That's a Hebrew idiom for he deceives or takes advantage of. He begged his father for some remaining blessing, but the only blessing Isaac could offer Esau was really more of a modified curse. It affirmed all that Esau lost to Jacob prosperity and family rulership, both of which were assumed, assumed the loss of the covenant blessings as well. However, Isaac foretold that Esau would eventually throw his brother's yoke off his neck. That's a prophecy that's been historically fulfilled in a couple of different times and ways. Esau resented Jacob so deeply that he planned to murder him as soon as his father died. And he believed that would be soon. When Rebecca learned of his plan, she came up with her own solution. She sent Jacob away to her brother in order to find a wife. She expected Jacob would stay a while, but she couldn't have known that he'd be gone for more than 20 years. In fact, there's no biblical record that she ever saw Jacob again. Well, Isaac agreed with this plan and sent Jacob away with a second blessing and instructions to take a wife from his mother's family, the family of Bethuel, Abraham's brother in Padan Aram. Once Esau learned his parents had sent Jacob to Padan Aram, to prevent him from choosing a, a, a wife from among the local Canaanites, Esau realized the depth of his parents' displeasure with his own wives and took a third wife for himself, an Ishmaelite woman. He sought his parents' approval, but, oh, so sadly, had failed to seek God's approval of his life. Overall, the account, this account portrays all four family members, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau, unfavorably. Now, it's possible that you might be confused. We might question the fact that God's will and prophecy that Esau would serve Isaac was accomplished by such duplicity. As one scholar stated, the explanation lies in the fact that God can accomplish his own designs by means of man's crimes without either relieving them of guilt or himself of being the author of sin or without himself being the author of sin. God never tempts us to sin, nor are his actions forced upon him by human choices. Regardless of the good end achieved, 
each of the four family members remained accountable before God for their own sinful attitudes, schemes, and behavior. God's will would have come to fruition in his own way, even if Jacob and Rebekah hadn't chosen to deceive and manipulate Isaac. While our manipulations will neither stop nor change God's ultimate predetermined purposes, they do determine the way in which God will deal with us. In this situation, all four family members suffered as a result of their wrongs. Isaac failed to bless the son he favored. Esau was rejected. Rebekah presumably never saw her beloved son Jacob again. And Jacob not only further damaged his relationship with his brother, he spent 20 years away from home because of it. And as it turns out, during those years, he became the victim of another person's deceit and manipulations. So chapter 28, verse 10, tells us that Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. Now remember, he'd been the home-loving son. Now, Estranged from his only sibling and forced to leave his father and mother, he found himself traveling alone to a foreign destination. To make matters worse, he was left outside to sleep. It was at this very vulnerable moment in Jacob's life that he personally encountered God. Jacob had a vivid dream. He saw a staircase between heaven and earth with angels ascending and descending it. The Lord stood above the stairway. In the dream, the Lord spoke directly to Jacob, introducing himself as the God of his fathers. The Lord promised Jacob the land on which he was lying. He promised him descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth, and that he would and that they would inherit the land he promised that all people on earth would be blessed through Jacob and his offspring of course all of these promises reflected the patriarchal covenant but god also gave jacob a very specific assurance that would have encouraged him in these present circumstances he promised that he was with jacob would not leave him and would watch over him wherever he went. And he promised to bring Jacob back to Canaan. It was time for Jacob to decide for himself whether he would make his father's and grandfather's God his own. The dream showed Jacob that an invisible world existed, broadening his perspective of his life. But more specifically, the ladder or stairway, showed him that God was reaching down to him and that Jacob had access up to God. God knew just what the lonely, vulnerable Jacob needed. His timing was perfect. He knew Jacob would be ready to embrace a relationship with him. In response, Jacob vowed that he would offer a tithe of his possessions, a token of his commitment that, as verse 21 says, the Lord will be my God. 
You see, vulnerability prepares people to hear from God. Have you found that to be true? Vulnerability prepares us to hear from God. At a most desperate moment in Jacob's life, the Lord revealed himself and spoke to Jacob's need. Allowing Jacob to endure the vulnerable position in which he put himself is the first way we see God preparing the soil of Jacob's heart for his service. It's very possible that you might have a loved one who's in a pretty bad situation right now. God certainly calls us to help the needy, rescue the downtrodden, and shelter the oppressed. In so doing, of course, we demonstrate God's love, grace, and mercy. However, we need wisdom to discern each individual situation. And I think parents need a special warning about this. I know from experience that our immediate response may be to protect or rescue our children from any and every ill they face. But you know, doing so may be unwise, particularly when the difficult situation is a direct result of their poor choices. By removing the natural consequences of wrong behavior, we aren't helping our children learn the reality of life. Bad choices eventually lead to bad consequences. That's the way life works. But we may be inhibiting something more than that. We may be inhibiting the hurting person from seeking or listening to God. A hurting person is a vulnerable person. Perhaps he or she is willing to hear from God in ways they otherwise wouldn't be. So will you ask God to give you the wisdom to know the best way you can demonstrate love to a hurting, vulnerable person this week? Whether it's to experience God's mercy and grace through you, or whether he or she needs to be left in circumstances of their own making, with your prayers, that they will seek and find God there. But there's a second application for us here. Perhaps you, like Jacob, feel vulnerable right now. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis wrote, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse the world. I learned this when one of our daughters was five years old. We were devastated to learn that she had a large brain tumor in her cerebellum right near her brainstem. And of course, the news was very unexpected. Because my young child was so vulnerable, I felt vulnerable along with her. I wanted to protect her, but of course I couldn't. During the days I lived in the hospital alongside her, my natural tendency might have been to grasp for security in the words and comforting presence of friends and family. In fact, at times that was my tendency. 
But very early in the trial, I'm so thankful for this, a friend of mine who'd recently gone through a time of great difficulty herself gave me some wise counsel. She reminded me that my strength would come in being alone with God. Quite frankly, I didn't want to leave my daughter for even a few moments, and I didn't want to withdraw from the comforting presence of friends and family. But it wasn't from them that I ended up drawing strength in the trial. My friend was right. I found strength when I crept into a small closet where I could be alone with God. Are you attempting to drown out the pain of your circumstances in one way or another? Where have you sought comfort? In entertainment? In food and drink? In a friend, family, member, or acquaintance? Do you drive yourself into your work? Or if you can afford to do so, make purchases simply for pleasure? These things might mask our loneliness, pain, and vulnerability temporarily, but the emptiness inside us, the recognition that none of these things can make truly make us less vulnerable, won't be healed by them. Whether you are in a difficulty that threatens you as a result of your own poor choices, or whether you're merely there as the result of life's general hardship, as so often happens. Will you allow God to speak to you? Are you willing to quiet yourself long enough to hear from him? Well, Jacob had put himself in a bad situation, and yet when he was most vulnerable, God met him. God was willing to work in the life of someone as imperfect as he. After Jacob's encounter with God at Bethel, he continued northeast to find his mother's family. Now, when Jacob arrived at his destination, he went to a well, just as his grandfather Abraham's servant had done in the same country when seeking a wife for Isaac. And as it happened, Laban's daughter, Rachel, was a shepherdess, and while Jacob was at the well talking with some other shepherds, Rachel appeared. Apparently, the stone covering this well was so large and heavy that the shepherds waited until they were all present to move it. Jacob was so overjoyed with the realization that his relative was standing before him that with a surge of strength, he single-handedly removed the stone. And perhaps his attraction to Rachel also enabled this unusual feat. Rachel ran to tell her father, Laban, about Jacob. Laban greeted Jacob warmly, taking him into his home. Now, Jacob came to Padan Aram to find a wife. However, he had no resources to pay the customary bride price. After a month of assisting his uncle... Laban offered Jacob wages for his labor. Seeing this as an opportunity to earn a bride, Jacob offered to work seven years in exchange for Rachel. Rachel, we're told, had an older sister, Leah. Leah had weak eyes, while Rachel was beautiful. 
Laban agreed to Jacob's proposal. However, at the end of the seven years, he deceived Jacob by secretly switching Leah for Rachel on the wedding night. The bride would have been heavily veiled. The giving of the feast implies the use of alcohol, and the consumption of the marriage would have taken place in the dark. That is how it must have happened. And so Jacob didn't discover the deception until the following morning. The story's so full of irony. Jacob the trickster received the same treatment from Laban that he'd given to his father and Esau. Well, Laban offered to give Rachel to Jacob also in exchange for another seven years of labor. Outrageous. Polygamy was a common practice in the culture, and although it was practiced by several of the heroes of the Old Testament, please understand that God never condones it. The Bible simply states the fact that it occurred. Furthermore, in each situation in which it occurred, oh, it always resulted in heartache. As becomes obvious, God planned to give Jacob a family through Leah. Jacob could have accepted Leah as his wife and not been further encumbered by debt to Laban. Had he done so, he also would have returned to Canaan much earlier. Instead, Jacob agreed to Laban's outrageous terms in order to also marry Rachel. In anticipation of what occurs in the following verses, we're told that Laban gave Leah and Rachel each a maidservant at the time of their marriages. And now this theme of favoritism continues. Jacob favored his second wife, Rachel, over her sister, his first wife, Leah. As a result, the Lord made the unloved Leah fertile, and she bore Jacob four sons. During this time, Rachel remained barren, and a spirit of intense competition ensued between the sisters. That's pretty sad, isn't it? Each gave their maidservants to Jacob to bear him children they could claim as their own. Even after Rachel bargained to gain the aphrodisiac mandrake plant from Leah, it was again Leah, not Rachel, who conceived and bore an additional two sons, Issachar and Zebulun, plus a daughter, Dinah. Eventually, the Lord granted Rachel a son, Joseph. She only bore one other child, Benjamin, who wasn't born until after Jacob and his family left Padanaram, and his birth turned out to be the occasion of Rachel's death. Well, as you can imagine, the tension in Jacob's household over this rivalry of his wives was unquestioningly difficult to live with, and this continued for at least 20 years. Again, Jacob was reaping the consequences of his poor decisions. Now, although Leah couldn't have known it at the time, she indeed was honored. For it was she, not Rachel, who was eventually buried with Jacob in the tomb of the patriarchs. And it was she, not Rachel, who bore the forefather of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, through her son Judah. Her son Levi has the honor of being the forefather of Moses, Aaron, and the priestly tribe of Israel. 
Rachel's son, Joseph, was also greatly honored. He was used by God to bring about the fulfillment of God's salvific plan, although in a very different way than Judah. After Joseph's birth, Jacob asked Laban to allow him to leave for Canaan with his family. But as we read, Laban was in no hurry to let Jacob go. So he negotiated a business arrangement to keep Jacob in his employment, agreeing to give him the least common and the smallest portion of his flocks as his wages, and then scheming to keep Jacob's flocks from growing. However, Jacob used his knowledge of shepherding and breeding, which seems to have been a superstitious one, to his own benefit. However unscientific his method may have been, God honored it and prospered Jacob. As it turns out, Jacob's, as Jacob's wealth increased, the deceitful Laban's decreased. The tension in the family mounted even higher. And in chapter 32, verse 2, we're told that Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him wasn't what it had been. Now, the Lord instructed Jacob that it was time he left Haran for Canaan. Jacob's wives were aware their father didn't want them to go, but they agreed anyway. To our disappointment, Jacob acted deceitfully once again and fled from Laban without telling him. To make matters worse, Rachel also deceived her father by stealing his household gods. We're not told why she did this. She may have believed that having them in her possession granted her the right to inheritance. Laban pursued Jacob for seven days before he caught up with him. And during that time, during his travel, the Lord appeared to Laban in a dream, warning him not to cause Jacob trouble. Laban didn't fully obey God, for he met Jacob with accusations. He was angry that Jacob left without telling him, and he was angry that his household gods had been stolen. Jacob permitted him to search through his tents, but Rachel hid the gods by sitting on top of them, feigning illness and claiming she wasn't able to rise. Then Jacob turned his anger on Laban, angry that in the 20 years he'd served Laban, Laban had repeatedly deceived and mistreated him. We're not given all the details of that in the account, but we're told more than once that Laban did that. Laban conceded in view of God's warning, the warning he'd been given during his travels, and the two men established a covenant, a peace treaty. Jacob agreed not to mistreat Laban's daughters and not to cross back past a designated point to harm Laban. For his part, Laban agreed not to transgress his side of the stone heap to harm Jacob. Jacob was a very imperfect man. Even after God appeared and promised to be with him, he still at times operated under his old nature. He knew he was leaving Padan Aram with his wives and children at God's direction Yet he still chose to deceive Laban by running away from him. He did the right thing in the wrong way. Jacob wasn't yet fully trusting God. 
he was still living by his own methods. Now, it's hard to miss the fact that Jacob, the deceiver, schemer, and manipulator, received the same treatment from Laban of which he himself had been guilty. We may find that the people by whom we're easily irritated are actually those who are most like us, sharing our faults. You see, God allows this discomfort in order that we might see ourselves for what we truly are. It's unpleasant to have a mirror held in front of our face when we're looking our worst. Seeing our weaknesses in others shows us just how ugly we can be. Some people rebel against this so much that they harden themselves against the truth that they're really seeing themselves in the mirror. None of us wants to believe that our natural self is so offensive. It hurts our pride. However, God loves us too much to allow us to remain ignorant of the destructiveness of our sin nature. Until we see ourselves as we truly are, we can't see our need of him. So God exposes the ugliness of our sin. God exposes the ugliness of our sin. Again, why? Why does he do this? Let me say it again. It's because It's one of the discomforts he must allow in preparing our hearts for his service. As unpleasant as as it is, we must face up to what we really are, are in our natural selves. Just as vulnerability prepares us to hear from God, exposing the ugliness of our sin nature is also essential. Are you willing? Are you willing to allow God to show you yourself as you naturally are, apart from his sanctifying grace? It will no doubt be uncomfortable. But if you remain humble and teachable, the revelation will make your heart fertile for his work. You know, there's a sense in which one reads these chapters about the first part of Jacob's life and wonders whether the characters have left any good example we can follow. We see a family that's quite imperfect, at times even just downright dysfunctional. But oh, how encouraged we can be that God chooses and works through very imperfect and unlikely people ordinary people like you and like me. Will we allow him?
Thank you.